Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Listeners should refer to the disclaimer in the episode notes and at the end of this podcast. We have been speaking to the regulator and all of our peers will have been to all the way through the last six months because no one wants to see mums and dads or young people or retirees or anybody else blowing up their money, buying stupid stuff. G'day and welcome to the Equity Investor Journey, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. I'm Phil Muscatello, and today I'm pleased to be speaking with Gemma Dale. Hi, Gemma. Hey, Phil. How are you doing? Really good. Gemma's the Director, SMSF and Investor Behaviour at NAB Trade, and is the host of the Your Wealth podcast, which we should all be listening to. I'll just recommend that at this point. It's a great podcast. Thank you. <laughs> it uh, features insights and updates from market and finance experts to help investors become better informed. She's also a regular market and finance commentator on many media channels. But as someone who's in charge of investor behaviour, it's been an interesting year. What have you seen at NAB Trade? Yeah, so I'm not in charge of investor behaviour. I don't get to tell anyone what to do, but I do, I do get to <laughs> you observe you've it. You've got some ideas, yes. Yeah, <laughs> observing it is the interesting thing. So, yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating. I've been, you know, my roles involved observing investors in many ways for quite a long time now, a couple of decades, let's be honest. And it's been quite interesting when I try to summarise how retail investors, so mums and dads, you know, 22-year-olds just investing their first dollar, retirees, you know, the general population, how they approach investing. And I've tried to be quite clear that the average retail investor makes really astute decisions with their money. There's a bit of a hypothesis and maybe some cynicism among professionals that says basically individuals should entrust their money to somebody else. You, know, you should give your money yeah. to a professional because they know more than you do and they will make better decisions with your money than, than you will. And one of the things I've really loved about coming to work with NAB Trade, which is a self-directed platform, so you get to make your own decisions about what you do with your money, is that you can kind of drop that paternalistic view of things and go, you're pretty smart and you also don't want to lose money. You, know? <laughs> you would prefer to make some money rather than lose it. You will probably do the research and make some good decisions, right? And what's been gorgeous watching investors over the years is going, that's exactly what they do. They generally, and you've always got to say generally, there will be people at the margins, obviously, generally make good decisions. One of the things that's been most interesting to observe is investors over time have absolutely come to understand volatility in the share market. So they know what that is. They know to expect. So they, they actually know what to expect with volatility because a lot of times people are, you know, once they see their portfolio dropping 20% in value, they, that's when they panic.
they can sell. But you're not seeing that kind of behaviour? Yeah, so this is what I was saying about the hypothesis. There is this idea that retail investors panic when the market falls and they sell. And when markets are really high, they get greedy and start chasing the top. And this idea that basically they get in at the wrong time and they get out at the wrong time and they tend to lose money. It's just not what we see. And whether that's a sort of a phenomenon in the last decade or whether it's always been true but we just didn't have particularly good data about it, I'm not sure. But certainly over the last few years when this has sort of been the bulk of my job, actually watching people and what they're doing, by the dip, it's a phrase that people use all the time now, our investors are absolutely attuned to what markets are doing and they will buy good quality companies when they're cheaper, not when they're more expensive. So the fact that the market is rising tends to make our investors nervous and when it falls, they tend to see opportunities and rush in and buy. This year was the great test, I guess, of that. So over the last few years, we've seen that trend, but we didn't have any great examples. You know, we hadn't seen a 20% fall for a really long time. So yeah, we didn't yeah. have any any really good evidence to go, okay, if you're really tested, will you stick by your principles? Um, as I say, every, everyone's got a plan until <laughs> they get punched in the face. And it's amazing how the market can punch in the face pretty regularly. So this year, you know, everyone copped quite a few punches. When the market absolutely collapsed, I mean, that was an incredibly sharp fall in February and March from record highs to, you know, a 30% fall in three or four weeks, we saw the most confident contrarian behavior you could expect. So it was absolutely fascinating to watch. We saw huge amounts of buying. We had record cash levels when the market was at its peak, which was in February. So people were sitting on the sidelines with all this cash waiting for an opportunity to buy. They started buying hand over fist through March and April. So they were just buying and buying and buying. They weren't buying stupid stuff. They were buying exactly the sort of thing they would buy any old time. So they were buying banks, they were buying CSL, they were buying Cochlear, they were buying ETFs, they were buying a wide range of Australian and international equities that have been beaten up. They really loved buying airlines and travel stocks, so they felt that they'd fallen too far and there was an opportunity for those to bounce back. Don't know if anyone expected six months later we would still have planes on the ground, (laughs) so that's been interesting. But so we saw really aggressive buying and the other thing we saw was a huge number of people coming to the share market for the first time. So we saw a five-fold increase in new applications to open a share trading account. That's not unusual. I think a lot of uh, brokers across the market saw the same thing. People got excited about buying shares for the first time uh, in a really long time. I think it's also part of having time away from work. People have got time to look at things as well. And have you noticed that kind of thing where people are suddenly, they've realised there's something happening on the share market and they better do something, take that opportunity right now? This particular crash was time sensitive. Yeah. In a way that the GFC... It was a crash, absolutely, but it took a long time. From the peak to the trough was nearly 18 months. Mm. That is a long time to lose money. (laughs) It's also a long time to be trying to pick the bottom. And so a lot of people, I think, were worn down emotionally by the losses over that period. The market was down 55% at the peak. at the peak of the losses, if we want to call it that. Um, You know, the market fell dramatically, but it took a long time. There were certainly weeks where it would lose 10% in a week. But we saw in March 30% in three weeks. So it happened incredibly quickly. Uh, It was a really steep decline, but it started climbing really, really rapidly. So we saw the sharpest bull market immediately after the sharpest bear market. <laughs> and so, you know, so the time was of the essence. 
what was really impressive was people did respond really quickly. I think it's worth noting also, you know, the GFC was 2007, 2008, 2009 was that whole period. Online broking was available, but not everyone had an online share trading account. A lot of people uh, were still investing via managed fund. ETFs Mm -hmm. were not popular. So the market was less developed. Technology was not anywhere near as sophisticated as it is now. Uh, So you couldn't trade on your iPhone, for example. Hadn't been launched yet, I don't think. Uh, So timeliness is far more far less of an issue now because people can respond really quickly. The other thing is that there is just so much high quality information out there for people and it's much less expensive than it used to be. So if you want to buy shares and if you want to be informed about the shares or the products that you're buying, you're in a vastly better position than you would have been 10 years ago and 20 years ago. Forget about it, right? You didn't have any options. You had to look it up in the newspaper. It was ridiculous. So it's much easier for people now, but they're also much better informed and And it's going to cost them a lot less to do it. And people just took advantage of it. People are talking about those new Robin Hood traders in America, the ones that have, this is a very much, very cheap online trading accounts. And that's been what's driving up the market, these new retail investors who have come in. You haven't seen anything like that in Australia or you don't think that's happening here? (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting this question all the time at the moment. And it's been been a great story, I think, Uh, certainly... So the Robin Hood phenomenon in the U.S. absolutely is a phenomenon. It's 100% a thing that is happening. Uh, It's free brokerage for ordinary share trading. Important thing to note, if you are paying nothing for a service that costs a lot of money to provide, because it's not free to provide share trading, (laughs) then they're going to make money somehow. And they make money in ways that it would be far less possible to do in Australia. So it's a really different system. First of all, they offer fractional share trading. So for something like Tesla, which up until it's split was well over $1,000. And if you only had $1,000 to invest, you flat out couldn't buy it. Uh, they allow share, fractional share trading so you can buy bits of shares. They offer all these sophisticated options. Yep. But they make money when you start taking on more sophisticated options, so buying on margin, that kind of things. Mm. Whether they do or they don't, I'm not sure. But there is a perception that they encourage higher risk types of products, leverage and so on, because that's where they make their money. The other thing they make money out of, which doesn't happen in Australia, is selling your share trading data to high-frequency traders. So the ASX is absolutely obsessive about ensuring that... Really? True story. I'm shocked. Are you? <laughs> I'm actually shocked about this. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Okay, so this, this is actually something that's been in the public domain for quite a long time. But yeah. retail brokers in the US, many of them sell trading data to high-frequency traders. Who obviously use it to make money themselves, I'm assuming, exactly. so presumably. They yeah, they yeah. effectively front-run wow. those trades. Yeah. And it might only cost the retail investor one cent here and there, right? So if I want to buy something for $5 and I've placed my trade with a big online trading platform in the US, they would then on-sell that information. And it is high free. You know, it's all happening in split seconds, yeah. you know, far below the the attention span of, of a human eye or, or anything like that. So you're not going to know about it. That $5 trade, they will buy that chair at $5 and sell it to you at $5.01, right? So 
For you, that one-cent may not be material. It doesn't have a big impact. For the high-frequency traders, they're making... Which are doing it over and over and over again doing very, very quickly. hundreds yep. of yep. millions of dollars yep. of trades wow. a day. <laughs> uh, you know, so they make an enormous amount of money out of it. It's all about the technology and the timing and cable speed and all sorts of things that are far beyond my level of expertise from a technology perspective. So that is one way they make money is selling that data. Now, that's not a thing that happens in Australia. So... Um, and there are certainly people out there who are much, much better informed about this than I am. Uh, so, but it's a very different model, like completely different model to what we have. The regulatory environment is also quite different. So we have been speaking to the regulator and all of our peers will have been to all the way through the last six months because no one wants to see mums and dads uh, or young people or retirees or anybody else blowing up their money, buying stupid stuff or... Uh, making ill-informed decisions. So it's probably worth noting, first of all, that the environment is very different to the US. Uh, Share trading is not free. There is a cost to do it. The way brokers make money is different in Australia. And we have a regulator who looks at us closely and says, you're not encouraging people to do stupid things, are you? Uh, no, we would definitely never do that. We want people they'll, to They'll ring you up decisions. and uh, invite you in for a chat, <laughs> won't they? Yes. I think they come to us now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No one wants to see people make bad decisions, right? This is absolutely a market where yeah. you want your customers to do well. Everybody wants their customers to do well. So it's very different. The best way for me to explain what we see, so that, that's sort of one of the reasons why we would probably not see that kind of behavior as much here. If I tell you what we have seen, so we certainly saw huge numbers of people coming to share trading for the first time. But the thing that we saw was, uh, so for young people coming to market for the first time, they bought the big four banks and the ASX 200 ETF. Really? They were the top five They weren't going trade. in for Afterpay? Not even Afterpay, tech. right, which is amazing. Well, Afterpay is a huge stock yeah, on that trade. Yeah. It's been in the top 10 for years now. Um, it's been hugely popular. Zip's been incredibly popular. So we do absolutely see trading in those sorts of things, but they were the top five trades <laughs> back in March. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
arch for new investors. It's the kind of stuff your mum would tell you to buy. It's mm-hmm. the exact opposite of wild margin trading <laughs> behaviour. Right? It was very, very traditional, very sensible yeah, kind yeah. of blue chip stuff. And we haven't seen dramatic deviations from that. As the market gets less volatile, we've started to see a trend back to people trying to uh, or trading more speculative stuff when there's less news and the market is not rising so rapidly. We tend to see a lot of the long-term investors go to the sidelines and a bit more sort of active trading. And the active traders will be looking at small caps and things where there's much more upside potential, but a hell of a lot more risk. So we're seeing that at the moment, but they tend not to be the newer investors. They're people who've been doing this for a long time. And so that's would apply to SMSF investors as well, I'm assuming, that they've reacted sensibly to the market ructions this year. Oh, SMSF investors are unbelievably conservative. Um, they have a core portfolio that you could predict from 100 metres away. It's very focused on yield, obviously, uh, and it's very uh, low volatility where it can be. The most obvious reason for that is that over half the assets in Australia in SMSFs are in pension phase. So they've got to support an income stream. You can't afford when you're no longer working to lose large amounts of capital. And you also need to ensure that you can meet your ongoing living expenses. So seeing those guys take undue risk would be highly unlikely. <laughs> and we didn't see it during this period at all. I think what's really difficult for for pension uh, or for retirees and those in pension phase, self-managed super funds, people coming up to retirement, is they're looking for yield in an environment where yields are really under pressure. So interest rates are obviously at record lows and have been for a really long time. They've been dropping and dropping and dropping. We keep saying record lows, and then we find a new record low. Uh, when you think the lower bound is zero and we're really close to that. So it, it's really difficult for SMSF trustees they are being somewhat forced up the risk curve because yields are so low in safe assets. You know, So keeping your money in cash when it was paying 6% was a really easy decision. Mm. When it's paying 0%, you're effectively being forced to go elsewhere to get a return on your capital. So that's been really difficult for them, but we don't see them doing anything silly. We just see them looking to high-yielding assets or higher yielding assets sort of elsewhere in the market and perhaps having to take on some equity risk to get dividends rather than keeping it in cash. We've spoken to a few fund managers recently that have got very different views of the way the market is heading and whether there's a disconnect between the economy and markets. And I just wanted to refer to that interview that you did recently with Anthony Doyle from Fidelity, who's quite sanguine about the, the future for markets. What are your thoughts on this? Oh, it's such I a mean, question. without making predictions, of course. <laughs> it's such a Predictions good are very difficult, especially about the future. Yeah, very, very difficult about the future. Um, it's a really tricky one. I am also of the view that markets have somewhat gotten ahead of themselves. One of the things that <laughs> makes I think our confidence in a vaccine is perhaps inflated Uh, and the reason I say that and I've mentioned this a few times is my father's a virologist which is a an unusually useful thing uh, in this environment he works with plants not with uh, not with people and not with animals but a virus is a virus and creating a vaccine or a treatment for a virus is equally challenging regardless of the host right and we have never created a coronavirus vaccine at any point in history we've never thrown these kind of resources at it 
admittedly, uh, but it's a difficult thing to do to find one that is effective and has no side effects or no particularly adverse side effects produce it in sufficient quantities, get it to market, blah, 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 like it's a huge undertaking. And I think markets have been, certainly in the US, perhaps less so in Australia, but really enthusiastically embracing the idea that we're going to be back to normal. And I think that that's perhaps a bit inflated. So I'm concerned. I was asked what I'm doing personally the other day, and probably the best way to describe it is I do have cash, um, and I think keeping some cash for a pullback in markets is not a bad idea. They might keep going higher. Um, so I did an interview Hamish Douglas from Magellan, and I think he, he explained it. Well, he, his view I think is really valuable in this environment, which is the markets could grind higher by 20%, right? There's nothing else. You don't want to keep your money in cash because you're getting no return. Uh, we have a U.S. election, which could go either way, really could, uh, and that's that's really challenging. But we saw the market bounce dramatically after Trump was elected, after a couple of rough days, just went higher, or it could fall by 50%. And I don't think either of those outcomes would surprise me terribly much. Mm. And in that environment, I think there's value in having some cash, at least on the sidelines, uh, if you need to be fully invested, be fully invested, but I prefer to have some money in case some opportunities present themselves. Ready to deploy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in this current market conditions, is there anything that you've seen that SMSF investors need to watch out for? I think that issue of looking for yield is a real challenge for SMSF investors. One of the things that we have seen with SMSF investors that is pretty sad is that they have bought a lot of companies for yield and have been punished, very heavily punished, on the capital side. So AMP is probably the best example, where they bought a company that was trading on a yield of you know, upwards of 10% at various points in time. The share price has been absolutely smashed to pieces. They've had a whole series of issues to deal with. And in addition to that, the yield is, so the dividend's been cut. So you get this triple whammy effect, and that's that's hard to watch. The only point, I guess, that you can take away from that is diversification matters. So SMSFs have been heavily overweight financials because banks and companies like AMP pay these great dividends, but because they were all hit en masse for a series of challenges across the board, plus a declining interest rate environment, plus potential headwinds in the property market, all that kind of stuff. So they've all been hit all at the same time. The financial sector is down over 50% over five years. That's pretty awful, regardless of how great your dividend has been and you're having dividend cuts and delays as well. So that's tough for SMSF investors. All you can take away from it is that perhaps you need to keep your eyes peeled for other opportunities and start looking further afield because that lack of diversification has really hurt people. The other thing that's been sad for SMSF investors is certainly within our book, but I believe it's true across the market, they've been massively underweight something like CSL because it doesn't pay a particularly impressive dividend. It doesn't have the franking because a lot of its earnings are derived offshore and it you know it pays a 1% yield. <laughs> you know, nothing to get excited about. Yeah. However, had you bought it at the beginning of last year, you'd still be up 50%. Mm. You know, so it's, a great company is a great company and perhaps you need to contemplate 
having a portfolio with growth potential and selling down some of the assets over time rather than just looking for yield if the underlying quality isn't there necessarily. Because it's something that's been really encouraged in Australia, hasn't it, due to franking credits and um, the idea that you can live off your investments and uh, for superannuation as well, that it's going to be yield that is so important for retirement. But it's I think people really do have to reconsider what they're doing these days. I think you're absolutely right. And the franking credits argument is a really difficult one, it has encouraged companies to undertake less than ideal behavior where you have payout ratios of over 100% yep. um, or, you know, in the 90% plus, which means they're not investing in their businesses, right? Mm. Uh, and so they're not going to give you the growth that you want. And then if they, they don't give you the growth and something else happens to you. So it's, it's a real challenge for retirees. I, I really feel for them in so many ways, but we have sold retirees the idea that you don't need to touch your capital. And maybe we need to rethink that in a really low interest rate environment that may no longer be feasible. What about some other kind of investments, say corporate bonds? There's some income in there. What do you, how do you feel about that? Oh, I can see the look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> You're not um, happy about that one? It's a, look, you know, it all comes down to the credit quality. Um, mm-hmm. The first person who ever explained bonds to me really well was, um, was very articulate. And he said, an equity investor has unlimited upside. And their downside is capped at 100% and they can get income as well. The issue with bonds of any description is that your upside is zero. So you're getting back your capital. That's it. Mm-hmm. Unless you're going with zero coupon bond. Fine. That, just ignore yeah. those for one moment. Um, you know, for, for, it's like a term deposit, right? So your downside is still 100%. If you invest in the wrong bond or a company with really poor credit quality or something goes wrong, you can lose your capital, but the upside is limited only to what you get paid as an in, as a coupon or as an interest rate, for example. So you need to be absolutely obsessive about the credit quality of what you're investing in if you do go for corporate bonds. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. There's a place for fixed income absolutely in a retiree's portfolio and anyone's portfolio, but you do have to be obsessive about credit quality. And what's happened in the last few years is because interest rates are so low, uh, in order to get the yield you're looking for, people have been happy to take lower credit quality. And I think that's something people have to be a little bit careful about. And really do the research if they're going to do that, go down that path. Obsessive research. (laughs) Although there there are some ETFs, aren't there? There's some um, good ETFs that are investing in corporate bonds? Again, like you have to research the manager and make sure you're comfortable that they know what they're doing and that they're giving you what they say they're giving you. But absolutely, if you want to pay a professional to do that research for you, that's definitely a good option. It's Mm. quite difficult to do high quality research on fixed income. Uh, A lot of our investors love hybrids um, and they have invested in hybrids for many years. They obviously have additional risk because the capital can fluctuate irrespective of the credit quality of the company. But they can be very attractive and they do offer franking credits in many cases and all that kind of stuff. So they're an option for people too. There are lots of options. It's mm. just they're much less attractive than they used to be. It's yep. a bit depressing. Yep. Okay, so this uh, podcast is also to introduce you to Australian Shareholder Association members. I'm sure there's plenty of people that know you and do listen to the podcast, but is there a, a gateway episode that you could recommend for the Your Wealth podcast? That's such a tricky question. I've got a vote. I've got a vote there. But oh, anyway. please have a vote for me. Well, the Anthony Doyle episode yeah. a few ago. I thought that was a lovely interview, really wonderful interview. But if you've got any ideas as well, let me know. So let me think. So we've done nearly 120 episodes now and we've covered a whole range of topics, which was 
uh, always the intention. So the intention was to cover financial planning strategy topics as well as market topics. This year we've been almost obsessively market related because it's just been such it's an interesting year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a market year. But we have also covered self-managed super fund topics, tax topics, all that kind of stuff as well because that's my background. That's where I come from originally. The most recent episode I did with Hamish Douglas from Magellan's really, he's a thoughtful guy and he says some really interesting stuff around where he think, thinks markets are going to go. So if you're looking for a bit of an outlook, that's quite useful. Uh, and shortly we'll also be publishing one with the NAB research team about the US election. I'm just thinking of the ones that were most recent, to be honest with you. Yes. <laughs> but the US election is so interesting, so mm-hmm. much more interesting than uh, those people who assume Biden's issue in would, uh, would have you believe. Okay. It's been great having you on, Gemma. Thank you very much for coming and joining us today. Phil, thank you so much. Please remember these podcasts are produced to provide information and education and they're not designed to provide financial advice nor are they recommendations to buy shares in the companies featured. The Australian Shareholders Association does not endorse or favour any specific commercial product or company. Please obtain independent professional advice before investing. We value your feedback and questions. Please contact us at share at asa.asn.au if you have any suggestions for guests or specific questions you'd like answered.